We're sto- still no clearer as to how long this series is going to be, but that's all right. Genesis 14, and uh, we'll read the whole chapter together. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 1, says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, and Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Geoim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Beler, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and Amim in Shavah, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Geoim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and of Anur. And these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Amen. This past week, I came across the following story. 
On the 24th of June, 1976, armed operatives for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine surprised the 12 crew members of an Air France jetliner and its 91 passengers, hijacking it to a destination unknown. The plane was tracked heading for Central Africa, where indeed it did land under the congenial auspices of then Ugandan President Idai Amin. And there it remained, apparently secure, at Entebbe Airport, where the hijackers spent the next seven days preparing for their next move. The hijackers were, by all estimations, in the driver's seat, as it were. However, 2,500 miles away in Tel Aviv, three Israeli C-130 Hercules transports, or planes to you and me, were secretly boarded by a deadly force of Israeli commandos who, within hours, attacked Entebbe under cover of darkness. In less than 60 minutes, the commandos rushed the old terminal, gunned down the hijackers, and rescued 110 of the 113 hostages. The next day, Israel's premier triumphantly declared that the mission will become a legend, which it surely has. Wouldn't you agree with me that there's something about rescue stories that captivates us? And wouldn't you also agree that they're that much more captivating when the rescuer is an unlikely hero, something of an underdog, as it were? We all know what it feels like to be inferior, and so we find ourselves rooting for underdogs almost instinctively and without thinking about it. It's something that comes natural to us all. Think for a moment about the Bible stories that first stick in our minds when we're just little children. Joshua and Jericho walking around the walls like a bunch of plunkers until the walls come tumbling down. David and Goliath. When Ada, our eldest, was much younger now, she would see me pulling my Bible uh, off the shelf or the children's Bible uh, before bedtime, and she would just say, Galath, Daddy, and she was asking for David and Goliath, and she would say, I love Galath, Daddy. And I would say, yeah, but Ada, Galath was naughty. And she would say, yeah, but I love him even though he's naughty. <laughs> and then came along Emmy. And when she was younger than she is now, she would see me getting out the Bible, and she would say, not Galath, but she would say Gaiaf, and she was asking for David and Goliath. And from one perspective, we Christians, like Joshua, like David, are underdogs par excellence, aren't we? You remember what Paul said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But from heaven's perspective, we are victors par excellence. Because the rest of that passage goes like this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The point of our passage tonight is victory belongs to the Lord. And the glory of the Lord's victory in our passage is all the more accented because it was displayed in the life of an unlikely hero, Abram, who's been the main character in our study of the book of Genesis recently. So if you're here tonight and perhaps you're feeling like you are right on the brink of committing your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you are afraid of the mockery of your friends and family and colleagues and co-workers, do let me say this. If you will give your heart to Jesus Christ, you will be more than a conqueror in him. Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And if you are in him, then one day you will inherit the universe as your estate. Do not be afraid. And if you're here tonight and you are a Christian, but you feel so defeated in so many ways in your life, my hope and prayer for this message tonight is that you would be able to look away from yourself and to a Savior who stands as a victorious lamb on Mount Zion and who will one day crush Satan's head under your feet. And that you would understand that you are in reality as safe as Jesus himself. Why? Because you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And the life that you now live by faith, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Victory belongs to the Lord and to no one else. First, we're going to see tonight the might of the enemy and the capture of Lot. And second, the rescue of Abram and the victory of God. So number one, the might of the enemy and the capture of Lot. Now, I'm not going to read all 12 verses again, verses 1 to 12 of Genesis 14, having just read them. But I do want to summarize for us what happened there in that passage. In verses 1 to 12, we're told that a band of four kings and their men, led by the king Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, were essentially unstoppable in the ancient world. Five kings came against them. They were outnumbered, and yet they found themselves, the five kings did, rather being running for their lives and falling into bitumen pits. And since the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were defeated, Lot's nephew, uh, sorry, Lot rather, Abram's nephew, was taken captive when those cities were plundered. You remember in last Sunday night's passage, Lot has pitched his tent. He'd traveled in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the, in the Jordan Valley. And so Lot was sort of snatched up along with the possessions and the plunder of the cities of Sodom 
and Gomorrah. And so the question for us tonight is, how can any of this have anything to do with our lives all of these years later? Some, some want to say that what this passage is illustrating is what happens to us when we separate ourselves from Abram or from Abraham. Abraham is the man of faith. And if we separate ourselves from the man of faith, then we will separate ourselves unto disaster. The problem with that, though, is that Lot separating with Abram was Abram's idea. And Abram was commended in last week's passage for giving Lot any part of the land that he would so choose. Now, others would say that Lot chose the Jordan Valley near Sodom and Gomorrah because he was coveting worldly pleasures. The land near the Jordan Valley was fertile, and so Lot's choice was sinful because he chose the fertile land despite knowing how sinful the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were. But last week's passage didn't seem to paint Lot's decision in a negative light, and nowhere did we read that Lot was aware of how sinful the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, we're not sure. So what is it we're supposed to make of this passage? Well, friends, remember how Genesis 13 described the Jordan Valley. It described the Jordan Valley as being like Eden, the garden of the Lord. In other words, from a human perspective... It looked promising, but in the end, it failed and it resulted in the capturing of Lot because outside the garden, all is not as it seems and it appears that a thing might look good and right on the surface, but in our fallen world, everything will eventually fail us. At one point or another, the healthiest body will one day die. The sharpest mind will one day wear out. The happiest marriage can still turn sour. The safest financial investment is still a risk at best. Under the sun, writes Solomon, everything is broken. Only Jesus Christ can be trusted not to let us down. And friends, therefore, we are to live by faith, not by sight. Again, I'm not saying that Lot was in sin to have chosen the Jordan Valley. What I'm saying is, since even the Jordan Valley could fail, we should get our hopes way down for the things of the world and set our eyes way up to the one who is enthroned in heaven because only Jesus can be trusted. Friend, yield your heart to nothing and no one but him. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the bread of life so that whoever eats at him will never get hungry. And whoever drinks and believes in him will never thirst. He's the true vine such that when we are abiding in him, we'll produce much fruit in our lives and not wither on the vine because his life-giving sap will be flowing into our veins And he's the good shepherd that can always be trusted to seek and to save the lost. And so yield your soul to nobody and to nothing but Jesus and watch his faithfulness prove true in your life. Everything will let you down but him. Do you know, I've actually read about very 
very young people who won the lottery before they were 20 and campaigned and petitioned the government to increase or to hire the age, the minimum age of those who are uh, able and legal to play the lottery. And they actually said that winning the lottery was the worst thing that could ever have happened to them. Why? Because they said, all of a sudden, you no longer know who you can trust. And when you don't know who you can trust, you start to feel paranoid. And when you feel paranoid, you start to isolate yourself. And when you isolate yourself, you feel lonely. And when you feel lonely, you feel hopeless. And when you feel hopeless, you very quickly become suicidal because you can no longer answer the question, what is the point in moving on and going on in life? But you know, friends, there's actually more to this passage than what we've seen already. Lot's journey to the place that looked like the Garden of Eden uncovers a profound aspect of what it means for us to be human. Namely, we are all craving for what we were originally designed to know. Augustine prayed, we are restless until we find rest in thee, O God. And Eden was where? The Lord was. Eden was our true home. And sin exiled us from the presence of the Lord and made us all refugees. Where is the place of the Lord today? Well, the place of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because in him, the fullness of God dwelt bodily. And the word who was God, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, friend, the craving that you experience, the longing that you experience, exists in your soul for a very real reason. It is your soul's way of reaching for what it was always designed and intended to know and experience and enjoy and love the presence of God himself. And if you would have what you were made for tonight, you must go to the Son of God. You needn't worry about winning the lottery. You needn't worry about living in a fertile land. You needn't worry about finding an honest politician. You needn't worry about any of those things. You must only worry about knowing Jesus Christ. Friend, do you know Jesus tonight? Do you know that Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother? Is Jesus your meat and drink tonight? Is Jesus your joy? Is Jesus your good shepherd? Is Jesus the bread of life to you? Do you love Jesus? Do you sing to Jesus? Do you come to church expecting to meet with the Lord Jesus? Do you live your life to point all eyes everywhere and all people in all places to the glory of the Son of God? Second, I want us to see the rescue of Abram and the victory of God. Do turn back to verse 13 of Genesis 14. Let me read these verses for us. Then 
Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 13, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to, to Hobart, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and do remember that refers to the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, which had been plundered, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek came, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner and Eshcol and Mamre take their share. So against all odds, Abram and his tiny band defeated the four kings who'd previously been outnumbered. And upon his return, Abram met two kings. He meets the king of Sodom and he meets... Melchizedek. Now we're going to come back to the significance of Melchizedek in just a moment, but do notice for the time being what Melchizedek does for Abraham. He points him heavenward. He points him heavenward and says, victory belongs to the Lord. Abram, that's why you were victorious, because the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth is the same God who is victorious over heaven and earth. And then he meets the king of Sodom, and Sodom offers Abram riches, but Abram says, still looking heavenward, be thou my buckler, my sword for the fight, be thou my dignity, thou my delight, thou my soul shelter, thou my high tower, raise thou me heavenward, O power of my power. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, ruler of heaven, my treasure thou art. Now what are we to make of Melchizedek? What are we to make of this one who makes some of us close our Bibles when we're trying to make it through the book of Hebrews and makes us think, I'm never going to understand what that book is all about because he just sort of appears, doesn't he, in the book of Hebrews, just like he appears here in the book of Genesis. Well, friends, the first and the original readers of the book of Hebrews were tempted, weren't they, to reach back to a Judaism without Jesus. And so the author sits down and he 
writes a sermon for those first readers so as to make the point from every conceivable angle and from every perspective that Jesus is better. And he says, you want to go back to the Levitical priesthood. Levites could only be priests. But Jesus was both a priest and a king, just like Melchizedek was priest and king. And since Melchizedek was greater than Abram, Abram tithed to Melchizedek. And since the Levites were in Abram's loins, in one sense, the Levites paid a tithe to Melchizedek as well because Melchizedek was superior to them. And Jesus, like Melchizedek, is superior by virtue of an indestructible life. For this Melchizedek, the author writes, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Jesus is better, just like Melchizedek was better and superior to Abram and to the king of Sodom as well. But we want to say, okay, but you and author of Hebrews, whoever you are, I'm not an ethnic Jew, and so I don't have the Levitical priesthood in my heritage. So what does all of this mean for me? Do you know there's an amazing way in which the author of Genesis illustrates the superiority of Melchizedek and Jesus, even for us ethnic Gentiles tonight. You see, Melchizedek met Abram with bread and wine after his victory to celebrate And to refresh Abram following his victory. But Jesus meets us with the bread of his body and the wine of his blood having accomplished our victory for us. It's not a celebration on the back of our victory. It is instead an offering that secures our victory. And in that sense... We are victorious because we are victorious in him. We, like Lot, we were held captive by sin. And there was nothing we could do. But Jesus, our greater Melchizedek, and Jesus, our greater Abram, redeemed us and was victorious for us. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And so not only is Jesus the place of God, as we were thinking under the last heading, but Jesus is the victory of God in that he accomplished for us a deliverance and the greatest need of our lives, the forgiveness of sins and deliverance from the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. Now, friends, We all know what it's like, don't we, to feel defeated in life. 
and to feel powerless and to feel overcome from time to time. But the call on our lives is for us to fight as victors, not as victims, because the battle has already been won. Jesus has accomplished it. Jesus has paid it in full. And therefore, we are free men and we are free women. Victors, not victims. I love the way that David Helm illustrates this. He says, the Battle of Waterloo is one of the most famous battles in history. It occurred on June 18, 1815. It pitted the French army commanded by Napoleon against the Anglo-German-Dutch forces led by the Duke of Wellington and the Prussian forces commanded by General Gibbard Blücher. There is an interesting story about how the news about Waterloo reached England. News was carried first by a ship that sailed from Europe across the English Channel to England's southern coast. The news was then relayed from the coast by signal flags to London. When the report was received in London at Winchester Cathedral, the flags atop the cathedral began to spell out Wellington's defeat of Napoleon to the entire city. And it said, Wellington defeated, dot, dot, dot. However, before the message could be completed, a good old-fashioned London fog moved in and the rest of the message was hidden. Based on incomplete information, the citizens of London thought Napoleon had won. And that would have been a devastating defeat for England. Gloom filled the nation as the bad news quickly spread everywhere. But when the mist began to lift, the flags high up on Winchester Cathedral completed the news. The flags spelled out this triumphant message, Wellington defeated the enemy. The English fears had been unfounded. Joy immediately replaced the gloom. All over England, people danced in the streets, rejoicing at this great victory over one of the most dangerous enemies the nation had ever faced. In like manner, he writes, the resurrection and ascension of Christ gives us a certain hope that our own victory has been secured. And yet many of our lives in the time being are lived in fog, aren't they? And it doesn't quite look like we are the victors, but instead the victims. But friend, that is not so. We are victors, not victims, because Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose. And we are in him if we are men and women with Abraham's faith in the Son of God. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. Amen. Amen.